Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Behind every large public event, protest or sporting fixture that we see that involves a police response to ensure the safety and security of those in attendance is a group of dedicated planning staff, sworn and unsworn, who work tirelessly to ensure that these large gatherings across London and the United Kingdom go ahead smoothly whilst keeping those in attendance as safe as possible. My next guest on Protect and Serve spent over 30 years in British policing, was awarded the Queen's Police Medal for his services in planning the Olympic torch relay after the Olympics was awarded to London in 2005. Retired Metropolitan Police Sergeant Eric Stewart, QPM, had an outstanding career in British policing. From working closely with local communities in North London to overcome significant challenges, to carrying out operations within the Met's air support unit, there isn't much that Eric didn't do in these 30 years in policing. In part one of Protect and Serve, Eric talks us through the moment he and his colleagues found out that PC Keith Blakelock had been tragically killed during significant public disorder in Tottenham in 1985, and how his sharp eye in the air support unit, India 99, had him guide his inspector to a rather ominous heat source on the ground following reports of a burglary. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. 
Eric Stewart, a recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Welcome to Protect and Serve. How are you this morning? Good morning. and uh, Yes, I'm great. Thank you. And thanks so much for inviting me onto the call. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, and I start my podcast like every good detective. We like to start at the beginning of somebody's story of policing and ask the more important question of why policing and what was the response from family when you chose such an interesting vocation? Well, actually, it's not the greatest introduction because... I had no plans ever to be a police officer. I left school in 1977 with a fantastic offer from the Royal Air Force to join them to do my officer and then pilot training. I successfully completed the officer training, went on to pilot training, and shall we say that was slightly less than successful. And having not made it as a pilot, there were no other jobs I really wanted to do inside the Royal Air Force. And I left in early 1980, scratching my head as to what to do next. And there was a big campaign coming out. I was living in Lincolnshire, but even there, there was a big campaign coming out from the Metropolitan Police in London for officers from all over the country to to come and join. And so there was no great ambition to be a cop. I had no intention of being a cop, but it seemed like a really useful stopgap at the time in 1980. (laughs) Um, as, As for the family's response, it was, well, that's interesting. You're going to London. And all of my family are based either in Yorkshire or Lincolnshire. And I think they were more interested in the fact that I would be in London than I was going to be a police officer. But as we know, things worked out pretty well. And during your training, uh, you know, Hendon has changed so much. It actually doesn't really exist anymore by by today's standards. The three tower blocks have all been pulled down. The area has been redeveloped. What was that training centre like? And what was the training like as a young man walking through those gates and understanding that you were engaging in a job as policing, very confrontational needs, all sorts of skills? What was what, what were those demands when you first realised that policing was going to be a challenging job? I think I always expected it to be challenging from the, the very first time I submitted the form and the sergeant came round to my house in Lincolnshire or my parents' house in Lincolnshire and sat down and said, do you know what you're letting yourself in for? I think I had a pretty good idea. It didn't turn out exactly as I expected. It never does, does it? But yes, I was nervous walking through those gates of, of Hendon. It was my first time in London, literally. My first time travelling to London as a, as a young youngster, 20. But fortunately for me, I think the Royal Air Force training and induction procedures had prepared me pretty well. And I, it sounds a little bit arrogant to say that I found Hendon relatively easy. I'd had three years of really really strict training the officer training was physically very hard very demanding exposed you to an awful lot of confrontation and dealing with confrontational situations and as a young officer aged 18 and 19 i was having to sit down with 35 40 year old men and women who had serious domestic problems who'd been arrested and sit down and work through and discipline them or give them the relevant counseling so i've actually had some experience if you like of those situations before I joined the police and before I went to Hendon. What was Hendon like? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I know some people struggled through there. Some people struggled with the discipline, which compared to the RAF was relatively easy. The fitness was relatively easy. And it it does sound arrogant, but I think I just had three years preparation for the police that most people don't get the opportunity to have. After you graduated from Hendon, you were stationed out to West Hendon, is that correct? Yeah, very disappointing. When On the final days, when the list comes out of where you're going to be posted to, just before you go on a week's leave, I I desperately wanted to be in the West End. I wanted to be in Oxford Street and Leicester Square and Charing Cross and 
Trafalgar Square, that's that's where everybody really wanted to be. There was a few areas that you didn't want to go to, the really challenging, difficult areas at the time, places like Brixton and Tottenham and Hackney were where we were all nervous about being posted to. But my first station was two and a half miles away from the police college. And when that posting came out, I was really disappointed. I was miles away from central London and I was going to be stuck on the outskirts of the Metropolitan Police District, as it was called then. And it, it was, when it was first announced, I thought, oh, no, I really don't want to be here. But actually, it was a very good place to start policing because the days and the evenings were extremely busy, but the nights were very quiet and you had to make your own work. You literally could, after midnight, slide away and do nothing and park up in a dark car park and go to sleep. Or you could get out and be proactive and start stopping cars and searching people and talking to them. That was the, the route I preferred to take. So it was a really good place to learn your tradecraft. Let's talk about um, the 6th of October 1985, if we can. It was a period which um, we remember the death and the loss of PC Keith Blakelock um, more than 30 years ago um, during what was probably one of the greatest periods of civil unrest London has ever seen. Um, during that period to which you were involved and were actually there at the time that PC Blakelock suffered his um, injuries, uh, which obviously sadly he succumbed to. They were scenes that shocked the country and yet were quickly overshadowed. PC Keith Blakelock was a father of three. He was protecting firefighters trying to put out the flames. PC Keith Blakelock died in rioting on the Broadwater Farm Estate on October the 6th, 1985. Riots which had been sparked by the death of Mrs Cynthia Jarrett during a police search of her home in Tottenham. That must have been an incredibly challenging early start in your career. Are you able to talk us through how you were brought into that public order situation and the situation that unfolded uh, shortly thereafter? Yeah, I think if we go back just a couple of years before that, there had been the Brixton riots in 1981 where I was there, I wasn't shield trained, I wasn't public order trained, I was still a probationer, but along with hundreds of others was sent down to Brixton, given whatever we could carry in terms of protective equipment, sh uh, shields, dustbin lids sometimes. And that was terrifying, 1981 was terrifying, but one of the outcomes of that was that I was determined as soon as I finished my probation was to be, become public order trained. I wanted to be properly equipped to deal with that situation if it ever arose. And so in 1985, when things were tense throughout the end of the summer, um, the late August through September, things had been tense. There was a lot going on in London, a lot of racial disharmony and unrest, a lot of dislike of the police. And we'd been sent on standby quite early on in the day, uh, in the morning, on a serial of public order officers. Initially, what was called Central London Reserve. And then we'd been redeployed up to Tottenham and we sat all day in a police section house with a canteen, sat playing cards and drinking coffee and eating. And we were actually dismissed. We were stood down around about half past five, quarter to six, got back on the bus and were driving from the section house back to our own station at West Hendon along with an inspector, three sergeants and 20 other constables. And as we drove past the edge of the Broadwater Farm, which none of us knew, the call went out on the radio to say that officers were under attack and quick as a flash our inspector turned the bus left we turned onto a road called lordship lane that i never heard of and the next thing i knew we were getting off and kitting up 
and walking down Adams Road where there was already bricks and bottle, bottles and petrol bombs flying towards us. Now, unbeknown to me, 60, 70 yards at most was an adjoining road, a parallel road called Griffin Road where Keith and his serial had also been deployed and both they and we for the next few hours came under a, a rain of, of petrol bombs and bricks. Some shotguns, some live firearms fired. There were officers with bullet holes in their shields. And around about 9.30 um, that night, Keith's serial was deployed to protect the fire brigade as they tried to put out a fire in one of the blocks there. They came under incredible attack and withdrew. And as they withdrew, Keith sadly slipped, fell, and was set apart by the mob who, for those that seen the story uh, and for those that don't the attack on Keith was astonishing something we've never ever seen in a public order situation in the UK before and the irony is that 50 60 yards away we knew nothing about it we were literally just standing taking all that same amount of debris and petrol bombs and there was some strange stuff going on that night there was petrol bombs flying with no fuse 20 30 40 bottles of petrol would smash around you and then they would light one and throw it so that the whole road would explode at the same time. Staggering night. And it was only around about, I think around about 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, where for the first time in seven hours, we'd been withdrawn from the front line. We were pulled back. We were given a 15 minute break. And so I think there was a, a mobile canteen there. When a journalist came up and said, did you know the officer that's being killed in the adjoining street? Under a hail of bottles and petrol bombs, he was set upon by a mob chanting, kill the pig. He was stabbed dozens of times. And that was the first time we had a clue that Keith had been attacked and killed. And even when our supervisors tried to establish from senior officers whether that was true, it was all denied for hours and hours on end. So we didn't actually get the confirmation. We were stood down, having started at nine o'clock on the morning of the 6th of October, we were stood down at seven o'clock on the morning of the 7th of October, 22 hour shift. Um, and it was when we got on the coach that the inspector was able to confirm what our worst fears were. There, there is no greater morale crusher than the loss or the injury of a colleague that you're working with, you know, and, and ultimately is part of the same blue family, as we call it, the thin blue line, that blue family that everyone's looking out for each other. How did that affect you and your colleagues? Um, because one one particular aspect we talk about is the evolution of recognising the significance of mental health and how that affects people over time. Now, back in the 80s, I would imagine things like mental health and, and PTSD, none of those words would have been used back during that period. So what was the coping mechanisms for you and your colleagues to try and get through what would have been an incredibly challenging period? Um, did we have any coping mechanisms other than going down the pub and having a beer and talking about it? No, there was no mechanisms uh, put in place and no, we had nothing that we had that we could rely on. If I go back to the, the morning of the 7th of October, one of the very first things as we got back on the coach was that confirmation. Now, bear in mind that coach had arrived on the estate with 25 or so officers. When we went home, that coach was half full because a third or half of our serial, the other officers that we were with, were hospitalised. Um, wow. A few a few had arrests and they were delayed, but the vast majority had injuries. Every single person on that coach was injured in some way. We were all burnt. We all had scorch marks. 
Um, some of us had chips out of various bones, broken finger here and there. But we were the lucky ones who hadn't had the injuries that took us away from the scene. So we, we sat on a half full coach and that is one of my enduring memories, the, the difference between the lively conversation and, and it's 1985, so people were smoking on the coach on the way there. That was quite normal. On the way back was utter silence, absolute silence. And then when I eventually walked in through the door at home, the TV was on, my wife was there. And we'd got our first baby by then. And the first reports were from politicians, local politicians, talking about the police having had a bloody good hiding that night. And that that stuck, that, and that sticks even now. How did it affect me? Um, I think if you ever saw a graph of my complaints record, you know, I, I've been an active cop all of my service. I've got stuck here and I've stopped people, I've searched people. And you become, you know, you get in confrontational situations and sometimes people complain about that. And I've been served with what the Met Police call the 163. I can't even think how many times. If you're an active cop, that's going to happen all the time. But if you looked at a graph, at a graph of my complaints record in the 12 months after that, the spike would be phenomenal. Because I think like everybody in police at the time, I was angry. And I didn't know who I was angry at or what I was angry about. I was just angry. And I, I actually went back. I had this conversation with one of the police commissioners, Bernard Hogan Howe, um, just as I was retiring from policing. And we had this quite lengthy conversation, about half an hour, and he asked me to come back and speak to supervisors in the police as part of his programme on leadership. And it was about recognising things like that as to if an officer's behaviour has changed so significantly, you've got to start digging around at the root cause. Don't think about the discipline or warning them or threatening them. You've got to start thinking about what's going on in their head and how can you bring them back from that situation. Um, for me, it was talking to other officers, it was talking to colleagues. And although I'm speaking about it now, I'll never speak in the level of detail that I will to those officers that were with me on that night. Uh, and this, this last few days, once again, via social media and texts and WhatsApp, that same group of officers will still have those same conversations and we remember different stuff every time. There's something comes back, even though it's 37 years on, you will remember a little bit of detail, like helping the elderly woman from the house who the house was very close to catching fire, carrying her out and then trying to secure her house and then realising that she had a telephone in her house, 85 pre-mobile phones or cell phones. We took it in turns to phone our loved ones to let us know that, yes, we'd been posted at the phone, but we were nowhere anywhere near the trouble. Probably the biggest lie I've ever told my wife in my life. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. And covering the mouthpiece just so that she couldn't hear the noise and the racket and the petrol bombs and the bullets going off in the background. They're all the, I've forgotten that. I've completely forgotten that until just I think it was last year we had that round of calls. So that's that that for me is the, the main mechanism of coping is talking about it to those who understand what was going on that night. And there's very, very few people that actually were there that do remember that level of detail, but it's great to be able to talk about it when you can. Is it? Am I right in saying that after that incident, to kind of get over those challenges, challenges and those hurdles of being in that vicinity, that you got yourself posted in that area where you took over a small team, almost a community-led team with 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 a policing aspect. Talk us through that kind of uh, that movement through your your next stage of your career. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the police had introduced something called inter-district transfer so they didn't want officers also 
embedded in one area. And it was it was a flawed policy because you get good at understanding your streets and understanding the criminals that work your areas and how they work, and you get good at identifying them. But they had this idea that there was a canteen culture that had to be broken down. And so what was introduced around about 1984 was that every five years you would be moved around stations. Now, mine should have been 85, the anniversary of my five years at West Hendon, but because I'd recently had the Advance and Pursuit course, they asked me to, or I agreed to stay on for an extra year. But when that came up early on in 86, just six months or so after the Broadwater Farm, I didn't really want to move, but the moves I was offered were to very small outer choir stations, and that just was something I just didn't want to do. And I was still battling with this Broadwater Farm, an unfinished job, I suppose, in my head. And I asked if I could be transferred back to Tottenham, and nobody asked me why. Nobody, again, nobody looked at my complaints record. It probably would have been a smarter move to say, absolutely not, you're not going anywhere near the Broadwater Farm. Was revenge in my mind? Not really. But to an outsider looking in, I think if I'd sat down and been interviewed by someone, somewhere along the way, there would have been a, yes, there's a piece of unfinished business, which you might call revenge, but I just call going back and doing the job that didn't get done. So I asked for the transfer to Tottenham, got that, um, did a few years there on the streets and, I, and, and had a great time. I was an advanced driver, occasionally I'd work in the control room and got to know the ground really quickly. But then a very good friend of mine and a sergeant who'd moved from my shift took over the Broadwater Farm policing team. And that at the time was a sergeant and six constables. And I was really conscious of the fact that things hadn't changed up there. In fact, if anything, for the officers, it had got worse. They were getting attacked every single day. If they wanted to make an arrest, they had to call for urgent assistance before they ever made a step towards the person they were going to try and arrest. And the whole shift and stations for miles around would be coming before you even actually went and laid hands on anybody. The pressure of that, I think, got to him uh, far more quickly than anybody could have ex expected and certainly caught him out. And unfortunately, he had, he had a breakdown and disappeared for a little while and was placed sick. So the vacancy was there. And, and as one of the senior PCs on team, I volunteered to take that on. And I, I went and took over the acting sergeant role on the Broadwater Farm Estate policing team. So yes, a community team in theory, but also trying to deal with a really hardcore bunch of criminals who were drug dealers and handling firearms and selling and sharing firearms amongst themselves. And again, it didn't take long for me to realise just how bad that was. Within about three months of being posted into that role, every single day we'd have officers assaulted. That team of seven of us recorded over a hundred assaults on police in a three-month period, which is ludicrous. It's one every single day. And to be honest, minor assaults like pushing or shoving or having our arms grabbed or being thrown to the floor, if we weren't actually injured, they weren't reported. Otherwise it could have accounted for three, four, five hundred. And so something needed to be done. And report after report after report had gone in as to how bad the estate was and nothing was being done. And then I read a report that had actually been written in 1984, a year before the riots, to say how dangerous that place was becoming for officers and how despised and hated officers were. So I wrote a report based on that and referenced that report and basically said, you didn't do anything about it last time and look what happened. If you don't do anything about it this time, the same will come about. 
the same consequences. I, I guess I bullied senior management. I put them in a position where they were vulnerable, and if they didn't do something about it, then I actually said in the report, I will personally ensure that you're held to account, which was a possibly a career-threatening move for a, a youngish mm. acting sergeant, wanting promotion at the time. But I was so angry, so frustrated, and needed to protect the officers that were working for me. And so that's what I did. And I think it's, it's in, say, incredible bravery, but it's part of the keys of leadership is supporting those people that you are empowered to lead and to find ways of improving and making their work areas safer and leading from the front and taking on those great challenges. So incredibly honourable to be able to take on a particular challenge like that to address these concerns with senior management to ultimately hold them accountable to help you in that change to make somewhere a safer place, which is ultimately the policing model uh, and certainly been the policing model for a lot of years in terms of making communities safer. I wanted to move on to the next component of your career, which saw you start moving into the public order world, which you have specialised in for some time. And we'll go into that a little bit later in the podcast. But the next part of your career is, is incredibly interesting because you spent a period of time uh, I think one in six weeks, if I recall, in hel- in helicopter op- operations, in what is often re- uh, re- uh, known as India 99. Yeah, from 99, uh, he is going north, going north. Units on the main road, about turn, about turn up towards the industrial units. Yeah, 99, is he at the top of the or the Ontario Road north, please? Yeah, from 99, he's in the industrial area, industrial area, looks like he's on a pavement. Stand by. Uh, fascinating insights in terms of policing support from the air tell us how you moved into that area obviously the air force was an interest to you before you joined policing was that kind of the precursor that kind of led you in that direction when i joined the police in 1980 the the concept of police helicopters was still being talked about but and some experiments but nobody ever really thought the police would have a helicopter but as i went through my probation and then through my early service these things called police helicopters were starting to appear. They were rented at first and they had pilots from private companies. And more and more and more, I got interested in it. And in 1984, when I did my advanced and pursuit course, they always took you to the police helicopter. And if the weather was decent and there wasn't much going on, then you got the option, you got the chance to go for a trip. Well, that was me hooked. From <laughs> wow. that minute onwards, onwards, I wanted to be on the air support unit. Now, it was a very, very competitive uh, process to get on there. And quite often, for some reason, and, and I still really don't know why, it was a lot of ex-traffic officers or serving traffic officers that were on that. And actually, the police helicopter at the time was being used to enforce uh, speeding on motorways. They were actually measuring the distance between two white blocks painted on the road and with a stopwatch and then with a slightly more advanced piece of kit, Doing speeding, spending £600 an hour to fly a helicopter to catch people speeding on a motorway. And when I did get on there, I found that one of the most frustrating days of the week. If we were doing speeding for half a day, that was really, what's the point? We've got better (laughs) things to do. But I I applied in, uh, I think it was about 87, if I remember rightly, in a, a competition where I knew I was up against about 300 other people and with so little service had virtually no chance because this was a 20 year plus job for most people 20 year service but the vacancies came up and one of the vacancies that came was for what they called a strapper a a part-time observer and 
incredibly, after a series of practical tests and interviews, the, the practical tests included flying in the helicopter with a pair of stabilised binoculars and counting the windows on a tower block whilst the pilot did some very strange manoeuvres, basically to see if you were going to be sick into a bag. Um, and if you were, then possibly it wasn't for you. But I managed to get through that. I managed to get through that. And yes, yeah, from 87 um, until the time I got promoted, quite a few years later, maybe 88, I went onto the police helicopter unit on India 99, the old Bell Treble 2 helicopter, which was a beautiful old beast, a fantastic piece of kit. And I spent one week on the helicopter and then five weeks back at my own station at Tottenham, again, either in the control room. And it was great because I had the insight from the ground when I was in the air, but I also had the insight from the air when I was on the ground. So I could help other officers understand what the, cap the, the helicopter was capable of and what it wasn't. You know, starting off by giving a helicopter a registration mark of a car that you're looking for really isn't going to be much use. But if it's a yellow car with a red bonnet, fine. I don't even care what make it is. If you give me a yellow car with a red bonnet, I've got a really good chance. I also discovered that I could actually identify cars from their shape really quickly. I think that would be much harder in this day and age when so many cars are of a similar shape. That would that would be really tough. But that was that was great to to work one week in six on the helicopter and then five weeks on the ground with my team. I mean, there were some there were some difficult moments. Uh, I particularly recall one after we'd switched from the Bell onto the Squirrel helicopter. And for the first time, we had a heli-teleball and thermal imaging. We could actually use heat-seeking, which, talk about being in its infancy, it was in its first few months of development in, in the private world and in the police world. And one night duty, my shift, we were working night duty, I was on the helicopter doing the night shift, and they'd had a what we call a suspects disturbed. Someone had come home heard a crash and then seen the burglar running out of the back of their house. All the shift had gone, the relief had gone to, to the call, suspected the camp and they were searching for him. And they were searching some allotments or around some allotments and we'd been called and we were there. wasn't that far to fly, literally three, four minutes from the base to Tottenham. And searching the ground, the I picked up a hot spot within the allotments and it was somebody tucked up against a hedge. It was very clear it was about the right height, five and a half, six foot long, about a foot and a half, two foot wide. And it was clearly the burglar who'd been running, got themselves very hot and took themselves up against this fence. The nearest unit on the ground was my relief inspector, the shift inspector. And I told him exactly where to walk along the fence on the other side of the fence and said, if you climb over, he'll be right underneath you. And he took the decision, not mine, and I'm going to emphasise that till the day I die, he took the decision to climb over the fence and jump onto the suspect. That suspect was a heap of manure. It was there for the allotment <laughs> users. But, of course, manure rots and gives off a great deal of heat, and it was just the right size. And, and Tony, if you ever listen to this, I apologise, uh, or sir, as you were then. I put him knee-deep in horse poo, and he never, he never, ever came back and told me off for it. But there was always slight references every now and again. Um, that The rest of that week was fine. But, of course, the following week, I had to go back to work and see him for the very first time and apologise. But uh, he, was, he was good about it. And we have spoken since about it and, and had a few laughs. I think the, the great the great thing about policing on the helicopter is that you the, the motto of the helicopter unit was, above all we serve, which has got quite a nice innuendo in it, if you if you think about it. But actually, that's what caused me to stop doing it as well, because... 
the frustration of seeing things happening, trying to explain to officers where to go and what to do, and then not quite being there quick enough and watching a suspect escape into an underground station or into an underground car park. That that became just too much in the end. It was making me think that I wanted to get back on the ground full time. And that's what I did. I did that for seven years, thoroughly enjoyed it. But it was a decision as to whether or not to go onto it full time, because that's the way the unit went. They stopped doing the strapper role. You either come on full time and there's a vacancy here for you or back to relief and shift work. And that's what I did. I went back. You're listening to part one of my interview with retired Sergeant Eric Stewart, QPM. In part two, Eric talks us through the moment that whilst asking his boss if he could lead the planning team for the Olympic torch relay, the windows in their building violently shook. And at that very moment, he and his boss were made aware of terrorist attacks occurring on the nation's capital. And as we talked, and as I started, I said, let me just read you a few facts. And, and his eyes kind of glazed over, like, God, he's seven years away, Eric, leave me alone. The windows of his office shook. They literally rattled. And that was the first of the bombs going off. 7-7? Seven, seven. Yeah. Wow. Next, on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, Produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. The Protect and Serve team wish to dedicate this episode to PC Keith Blakelock and his family. At the time of recording this episode, it was exactly 37 years to the day that Keith was fatally stabbed whilst carrying out public order duties and protecting the lives of other first responders we stop to pause and remember the ultimate sacrifice Keith made and the pain that his family feel every day that he hasn't been able to be around with them 